0: Brought to you by Penguin. The local governor is given by the Sultan of Gujarat a present of a rhinoceros <laughs> uh, as the Portuguese start their empire. Now, it's a very tricky present to be given.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> wondering. You, you, it's very difficult to wrap, I can is imagine. That, is
0: that, what would you do if you were given a rhinoceros? <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthur-Nayaka. This is the place where authors reveal how they tap into their creativity by choosing a handful of objects that have inspired them. This time, my guest is a British art historian. He was director of the National Gallery from 1987 to 2002 and then director of the British Museum until 2015. He's currently the founding director of the Humboldt Forum in Berlin and saying he's no stranger to inspirational objects is possibly the understatement of the last two million years. In 2010 the BBC and the British Museum told the story of 2 million years of human history using 100 objects selected from museum's collection. My guest presented a history of the world in 100 objects for BBC Radio 4 and it was a runaway success. Since then it has become a book and now an audiobook. Of course my guest today is none other than Neil McGregor. Neil, welcome. Really Thank good you. to have you here. Thank so you good very to have much. you here. Um, it seems an odd question to ask now because it's a question that's been asked uh, ever since, well, way before I was doing A-level history and a degree in history, is, is why is the knowledge of our history so important when at the moment the speed at which we move forward seems to be increasing?
0: I think it's to do with memory and identity and who we are and the fact that we are what we remember We individually and as a society are our memories and that shapes so much. And I don't think we have a chance really of understanding how we got to where we are, why things are the way they are now, unless we know about the past. Do you believe the study of history
1: is valued in our society?
0: I don't think it's valued enough. I think particularly in Britain, if we're talking about Britain in that sense, I think it's much less valued in Britain than it is, say, in Germany or in France, where there's a great... It has a different standing in the public debate, the public discussion. And that's, I think, one reason why Germany particularly is such a different country now from Britain, because it thinks about its history very hard and it examines it and tries to look at that in terms of what it should now do differently or the same. Britain doesn't look at its history in that way. We don't give it the same place in our schools. And I don't think we examine enough our past in order properly to understand our present. Then what's the importance of revising our history?
1: Last year, of course, some very important conversations were had about figureheads in British history and their own past. And that led us to have some difficult conversations about that.
0: Well, I think last year was a very, very good demonstration about how we look at our history. I think it's fair to say that on the whole, the British, we like looking at the good bits of our history, where we are the good guys. And we move quite quickly through the other chapters. And the discussions about slavery, discussions about Black Lives Matter in the context of British history, British economy. I think that shows exactly where we haven't spent enough time really looking at our history, looking at the difficult bits, examining them, thinking what it means, what it meant then, but what, above all, what it means to the way we behave now and think about the future.
1: Let's get to your first object and let's go back 6,000 years in time. The Jade Axe, this is your first object. Tell us why this is so important to you. Uh,
0: It's important because it sums up a lot of what we've just been talking about. This is a very beautifully, highly polished piece of jade. It's speckled green, and it's about 20 centimetres long and about eight centimetres across at the base. It's a triangular, teardropped shape, very thin, And it's been polished beautifully. And polishing jade is a very, very complicated process. It takes a lot of time. And it was found in the 19th century near Canterbury. And it was made about 6,000 years ago. And nobody quite knew why or where it was from. This is the kind of instrument, the kind of tool that let people become farmers in Britain. This is the kind of instrument that makes the British landscape. But what's so extraordinary about this one is that it was never used. It's very beautiful, but it's clearly not meant to be used. Now, that was that's, I think, already saying something very important, that in this world where we're still struggling to survive, small communities, farming... You make an object that takes a huge amount of time and effort and it has no practical function. Why? It shows, I think, the desire to have something of great beauty, of great value, great rarity in every society. But the most extraordinary thing about it is that it was just there. It's been in the British Museum for well over 100 years. And then about 20 years ago, the... French geologists realised that you can find very specifically where jade comes from. This is actually European jade. And what is fascinating, we discovered that our axe comes from a boulder in the mountains in Italy 6,000 years ago. A particular boulder, they know exactly where it came from, that's above the clouds on a mountain in Italy. And there are other comparable axes across the whole of North Europe which means that five six thousand years ago this stone was carried from far away polished made and treasured here it tells us something that is a constant of human human behavior we love things from far away we love things that are difficult to make we clearly invest them with great prestige and If they come from far away, that's special. But this object, I think, tells us that these people were doing a lot of things that we do. They want chic, foreign, expensive objects. Mm
1: -hmm. Neil, what is the value of conjecture in the space between what you're holding in your hand and the people who made it?
0: Why... Objects, I think, are so interesting, is because they give us the history, they let us near to people who didn't write. If we're trying to tell a story of the world, then for most people, for most of the time, there was no writing. So we have to tell it from the objects they made and how they made them. What you do know is that the person that made this axe had a brain exactly like yours hands like ours and then you simply have to conjecture and this is again why this is such an important part of history I think this kind of history is why would a society living more or less in subsistence in the south of England just establishing itself why would it devote so much resource to creating to acquiring something which has no practical purpose and there you're driven to the key question of what is it to be a human being? Why do human beings want things that are difficult to make? Why do they want things that come from far away and that suggest higher powers, remote skills? And there you're in the realm of conjecture, but conjecture that is very important because we know we still want those things.
1: That's interesting because of course in the field of academia it's about what you can prove. But the spaces the further back you go in history between what you're holding and what you can prove become wider and wider, don't they?
0: Exactly. And the different kinds of knowledge that can inform your conjecture, your hypothesis, they grow. There are more and more more and more different kinds of knowledge are required and that's why this period of early history uh, like the period from which this axe comes 5 6000 years ago is i think so fascinating because the intellectual disciplines that can help you guess why this object this beautiful thing why this object is made they they keep changing and so you need to keep rethinking what would a human being like me in those circumstances want with an object like this?
1: Let's move on to uh, 16th century Germany or AD 1515, to be exact. And um, your next object, which is a woodcut from Nuremberg.
0: Yes, um, this is the very famous uh, woodcut by uh, Albert Dürer of a uh, rhinoceros. And it connects, perhaps in ways might not be immediately apparent, with the jade axe, because it's also about how we think of things from far away, how we value them, and why they become so important in our imagining. <laughs> the rhinoceros is not found in Europe. Um, the great moment of the Portuguese expansion, the trade expansion, to Asia at the end of the 14th, 15th century, around 1500, meant that for the first time, ships were going directly all the way around Cape, uh, the Cape of Good Hope from India to Europe. And the Portuguese established settlement on the west coast of India, and the local governor, is given by the Sultan of Gujarat a present of a rhinoceros (laughs) uh, as the Portuguese start their empire. Now, it's a very tricky present to be given.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was watching you. It's very difficult to wrap, I can imagine.
0: What would you do if you were given a rhinoceros, (laughs) um, uh, which is a great, prestigious thing, terrifying animal. And the governor of the Portuguese colony decides that the only thing to do, as with lots of uh, awkward presents, is you pass it on and give it as a present to somebody else. So he decides to send it to the king of Portugal. And this rhinoceros is, as I say, weighs several tons, um, is put on a boat on the west of India and sent to sail to Europe, um, which takes, of course, several months. It arrives eventually in Lisbon, and it causes a sensation. Nobody in Europe has seen a rhinoceros since the Roman Empire. They knew from the Roman writers that rhinoceroses existed uh, because the Romans used to bring them for, to, to the circuses, but they hadn't seen one. And this becomes a, an amazing sensation in Europe, a great European celebrity. And the King of Portugal, who's also wondering what he's going to do with the rhinoceros, <laughs> decides that he'll give it away again and he'll give it to the Pope. And so it gets on the boat again, and on the way, it sinks. So in terms of creating a celebrity myth, it's absolutely ideal. This enormously famous thing has arrived, it's been seen, and then it disappears. And Dürer in Nuremberg, which is just beginning to become the great centre of the European printmaking industry, and Dürer is right at the top of this, he decides he's got to make an image of this celebrity. But, of course, he's never seen it. People have uh, written about it. They've described it. And he, from the little sketches he's got, the, the information, he invents a rhinoceros. And his invention of a rhinoceros is an amazingly powerful image. It's roughly the shape of a rhinoceros, but it looks as like though it's wearing armor. And it's terrifyingly framed, so that it's pushing against the frame. You get a sense of a very powerful, huge object. And this image, he can now reproduce with woodblocks in thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and spread them across Europe. And this becomes Europe's image of the rhinoceros. Why I think this is so interesting is because it shows that we need to have an image of the things we've heard about that we've never seen. And it's a real human need. Dürer makes the image of the thing that people had heard about. And it's not, of course, an accurate one. It's a fantasy, but it's so powerful as a fantasy that it remains the way Europeans think about the rhinoceros, um, really until the 20th century. It was still in German school textbooks uh, in the 19th century as an illustration of a rhinoceros. And the whole of Europe knows this, because this is also the moment when you can, for the first time, really disseminate, publish information. So if you like, this is a kind of fake news. <laughs> it's 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 not a real rhinoceros, but it gives a very good impression of the power and the, the the threatening nature of a rhinoceros and this image europe's glimpse of another world of a world it's just beginning to trade with and is be, then going on to exploit in the most extraordinarily brutal way, stands right at the front of Europe's relationship with the world. So you have the beginning of a European imagining. And that's why this object, I think, is so important, because that is now going to become, for the rest of the world, with the consequences we know, one of the driving changes for humanity, how Europe thinks about the rest of the world, how it goes out and what it brings back. This image is really the beginning of that.
1: I thought it was really interesting, Neil, where you say that the rhino arrived in Europe, a Europe that was obsessed not only with the possible future that lay beyond its shores, but also with recovering its own deep past at home. What purpose does that serve, or served the Europeans of its day to try and reconnect with that past?
0: One of the, as you say, one of the points about the Rhinoceros when it arrived was that it seemed to be a moment where Europe was recovering what it had always dreamed of, the lost glories of Rome. And 1515, of course, it's the moment of the Renaissance in Italy, the dreams of recreating a proper Roman Empire, the Roman imperial dream is very strong in Europe. And this rhinoceros and the response to the rhinoceros is also a demonstration of that. And as you say, it's that engagement with the past which will shape now the future of many European countries, countries that want to create empires which they will model very largely on Their understanding of the Roman Empire. Okay,
1: object number three, which is the Akan drum. Interestingly, linking continents, made in West Africa but found in America, and we can understand why. Tell us why you chose this as one of the objects, Neil.
0: This object, which is a, a wooden drum of the sort that you would sit on your knee. and play with your hands, not with sticks, with your hands, um, seems to me to be the demonstration of the object that gives a voice to those people in history who don't have a voice, who couldn't write their story, whose story was never properly told. And it's also a demonstration of the way the object itself is the document of whole experience. In the early 18th century, 1730s, the London doctor Hans Sloan, whose collection is the, based at the British Museum, decided to try to collect objects from all over the world that showed the things that people always do. And one of the things he wanted to collect was musical instruments. And he acquired through his agents in Virginia, uh, in the United States, a drum, which he thought was an American Indian, as it was then called drum. And it was acquired as that. And from the beginning of the British Museum, so from the 1750s until about 1900, it was exhibited as an American Indian drum. And then, at last, it occurred to somebody that it didn't look like that and that it would be useful to examined the wood because it looked more African. The wood turned out to be entirely African. It's a West African tree and the cords that hold the skin of the top are West African also. So what we're looking at is part of a royal West African orchestra of around 1700, a drum from somewhere around Ghana, now modern Ghana, found in Virginia. And, of course, there's only one way it could have got there. And the most likely way is that when slaves were sold and transported from West Africa, from that part of Ghana, to North America, not only were the slaves taken, but in order that they shouldn't get too depressed, they were made to dance. We know that they were forced to dance because otherwise they tended to get very, very depressed. Many tried to commit suicide. And this is almost certainly a drum that was sent with the slaves in order to make them dance and then taken on to the plantation. But we know that they were these drums were also used as a way of calling the slaves to rebellion, the many rebellions on plantations. And eventually drums like this one were band. And that's probably why Sloan was able to buy it in the 1730s. This is also, of course, a document of the beginning of African-American music, because out of the music that would have been played on this drum ultimately comes, of course, the music of jazz, the music of the blues. So in this one object, you have the Many different stories of the connections between Africa, America, and Europe in this case Britain, all three of them connected so it's a it's a it's it's a story that's still going on, but it's a story that doesn't exist in the documents from the side of the slaves. This drum is that story
1: Let's stay in Africa and just well less than a generation ago. 20 years ago. Tell us about the throne of weapons. From a distance, it would look like a normal chair, something you may find in a classroom. But, of course, as you get closer to it, you see that it is made up entirely of guns, weaponry that is not made in Africa, not made in Mozambique from where it is. You can see all the clips and the handles and the triggers of these guns amassed together to make this chair. It really is powerful and,
0: well, terrifying. I wanted to stay in Africa because the histories, among the many histories that we don't learn at school or university, the many histories that we don't know enough about, the history of Africa is obviously very, very central. And this object, which is like an armchair or a a, a dining chair, the chair you would find at at a dinner table or in the kitchen, is made entirely of parts of guns, rifles, entirely. And it was made around the year 2000 in Mozambique as part of a, remarkable campaign after the civil war. The struggles to free Africa for colonial from colonial rule to independence were very often violent, particularly in and in Mozambique. And as so often after independence came civil war, because independence had been won only by people fighting. And this Throne marks the end of the civil war in Mozambique. Uh, There were two factions, one supported by the Soviet Union, one by the United States during the Cold War, and it was a murderous, bloody civil war. And at the end of any civil war, one of the things you have to do is try to get the weapons out of circulation. Um, We saw that in Northern Ireland. Decommissioning the weapons is really important. And the local bishop, decided that one of the ways you'd do this would ask people to hand in their weapons in return for things like sewing machines, bicycles, ploughs, whatever, and then that these weapons should be turned into works of art, objects that could be shown. Africa, this part of Africa, there's an old, a long tradition of making a throne out of the weapons of your enemy on which you sit to show you have triumphed. This isn't meant to be sat in by anybody, it's a throne for peace sitting on the weapons of the enemy. But what's so powerful about it, and why I wanted to choose it, is because none of the weapons in it, none of the weapons used fighting the civil war in Mozambique or elsewhere in Africa, was made in Africa. All the weapons were made outside. All the weapons were made in the Soviet Union, in North Korea, in Czechoslovakia, in Poland. The whole story of the West and the East, the Cold War, being fought out in Africa is in this object. And put with the air can drum, these are the parts of history that I think we must try to think about. We don't generally know enough about them. And they shape Africa now, they shape the world now. And that's why I think it's really important to look at them, think about them, and think what they say about the world. As you say, this, is only, this was made only 20 years ago. This is history of our time.
1: Now, A History of the World in 100 Objects has just been released as an audio book. Let's have a listen to some of the last object, which is a solar-powered lamp and charger manufactured in China.
0: Here is Alu Casadeh mother and adult student from diapur village in rural West Bengal, who is using one of the simple lamp kits in her home. For last one year, I am using solar lights. It's very useful than the kerosene lamps. Now I can work at night, my children can do their lessons at night. And you know we are living in the storm-prone area. If there is storm, then kerosene lamps are not work. In
1: that way, solar light works as electric lights for us, and I'm happy.
0: Larger panels can provide power for cookers, fridges, televisions, computers and water pumps, so that many of the defining amenities of towns can now be available to villages. But there's more. Both towns and villages can be set free by solar power, even when there is a mains electricity supply. Nick turn again. One of the great things about solar power is freedom from the grid. In many parts of the world, particularly the developing world, and particularly South Asia and Africa, it is extremely unreliable. Also, the energy is unreliable from the point of view of interventions by corrupt people. It's all too easy to flick a switch and turn off your energy supply and then demand payment to put it back on. With solar power, you can organise it yourself. You're in control. So it's really empowering relative to relying on the grid system.
1: That was an extract from the audiobook of A History of the World in 100 Objects, written and presented by my guest, Neil McGregor. The audiobook is available to buy now. There's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. Now, this is the Radio 4 series, and it's beautifully produced, isn't it? With snippets of interviews and music and actuality. Um, Neil, you must have been so pleased with the result.
0: Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, we had no idea whether it was going to engage listeners, whether people were going to be interested. We did it in the British Museum because the British Museum is where you can show the connections across time, from the whole world. And that's what we wanted to try to do. But the public response was marvellous.
1: We're going to give you an object number five. It's this extraordinary piece of art, a tiny, rusty little boat. And in the boat are a number of matches, all pressed together, huddled together, standing. But each match has been ignited and of course, it's there to symbolise refugees huddled together, fearful in this rickety old boat. You don't know whether it will survive. But the burnt matches tell you that these people, like the matches, have suffered. And that's why this boat is so devastating when you look at it.
0: Yes, Um because it's 10 years since the radio series, Radio 4 asked if we could come up with object 101. An object would sum up the last 10 years. And that was a really big question. What are the big events of the last 10 years that tell us something about ourselves? The solar-powered lamp and the charger had ended on a very optimistic note, because we all know what mobile phones have done how they've changed power relationships. We all know what solar power is doing in terms of climate change. But the last 10 years have seen another thing that has, I think, dominated us, which is the mass migrations across the world, whether we're talking about uh, the Rohingya, whether we're talking about inside Africa or across the Mediterranean. And it's seen the collapse of the political order in large parts of the Middle East, again, with people from outside fighting there, just as we saw in, in Africa. And the refugee problem and the how the world responds to refugees has become one of the central questions. It's again a question that's happened all through history. People have always moved, fled or sought better lives. But the object that we decided to uh, to, to select was a series of very small model boats made by a Syrian artist, Issam Kurbaj. And it's about the plight of the refugees. And it's a very, very powerful symbol because the boat is fragile. The people, the matchsticks, you read them as people standing, are huddled together. There are too many of them to be safe in the boat. They're spent and they're in danger. And everything will depend on luck and on generosity of others to decide whether those boats reach harbour, whether those people fleeing find a safe refuge and are welcomed in it. And that seemed a good place to finish because it reminds us again that this world is endlessly and constantly interconnected and that what happens will depend on all parts of it. We know why the refugees are fleeing across the Mediterranean in those tiny boats. We've all been shocked by that. But we also know that what happens to those people depends on us, that we're all part of this story, and we're all in the same predicament. People have been fleeing for centuries, have needed help, support for centuries, and to remember that that predicament goes on and we can change it. All through the story, uh, all through the objects, is the demonstration that people can change this. They can make it better. And to that extent, I think these little boats, which are very moving, because... Everybody can identify, I think, with that vulnerability. To that extent, it's about hope, optimism. We can change this. And what happens depends on us.
1: Neil McGregor, what a pleasure it's been to hang out with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed that very much. Thank you. Thank you. Think Again by Adam Grant. This is the critical art of rethinking. Adam Grant shows us how challenging our opinions can help us gain wisdom and excellence at work. Discover
1: how debating champions win arguments, how black musicians challenge white supremacists, and the joy that can come with being wrong. You probably don't recognize his name, but Mike Lazaridis has had a defining impact on your life. From an early age, it was clear that Mike was something of an electronics wizard. By the time he turned four, he was building his own record player out of Legos and rubber bands. In high school, when his teachers had broken TVs, they called Mike to fix them. In his spare time, he built a computer and designed a better buzzer for high school quiz bowl teams, which ended up paying for his first year of college. Just months before finishing his electrical engineering degree, Mike did what so many great entrepreneurs of his era would do. He dropped out of college. It was time for this son of immigrants to make his mark on the world. Think Again by Adam Grant is available
0: to download now.
1: And before we go, we would love you to share this podcast with everyone you know. We'd also like to know what you think. Please do comment and rate it too. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you so much. And remember, tell everyone you know. Otherwise, I'll come and find you.